Am I on? All right. Well, good evening. It's a bit of a change here. I'm not, as I mentioned Sunday morning when I preached, I'm in my comfort zone right here as I lead singing. But when I'm over here, I'm not in my comfort zone. But when he's over there, I'm definitely not in my comfort zone. And, uh, uh, but I praise the Lord for our pastor. We have a wonderful pastor. And there have been a few men in my life that have really uh, been an impact and made a difference. My grandfather, uh, whom I love dearly and died when I was 19, um, and my father, who both these men have been major impacts in my life. But I have to say, and I'm not just saying this because he's sitting there, that Pastor Cregan, uh, Pastor Cregan, Pastor Smith. Boy, I tell you, I, have, I do that about once a year. But I mean, Pastor Smith has been a great influence in my life, and I praise the Lord for him. And um, uh, just, I hope you appreciate your pastor. I hope you appreciate him, and let him know you appreciate him very much. All right, you got that thing queued up I gave you, don't? You know, uh, Valentine's Day is coming real soon, and I think our church will never be any stronger than our marriages. And, and I think that our marriages... Uh, I got some rules, guys. This is for the men. Rules for a happy marriage. So if you guys uh, uh, want to have a happy marriage, you ought to write these down. Okay, rule number one. You ready? Here we go. <clears throat> the wife always makes the rules. That's rule number one, guys. The wife always makes the rules. Rule number two. The rules are subject to change without notice. You need to remember that. No notice on the changing of the rules. Rule number three. No husband can possibly know <clears throat> all of the rules. That's a rule. You can't possibly know them. Rule number four, if the wife suspects the husband knows any of the rules, she must immediately change all of the rules. So give it up, guys. You're never going to learn the rules. Rule number five, the wife is never wrong. That's the most important rule. The wife is never wrong. Rule number six, if it appears the wife is wrong, it is because of a flagrant misunderstanding caused by something the husband did or said. Rule number seven, if rule six applies, the husband must apologize immediately for causing the misunderstanding. Rule number eight, the wife can change her mind at any time. Rule number nine, the husband may never change his mind without the express written consent of the wife. (laughs) Rule number ten, the wife has every right to be angry or upset at any time. Rule number eleven, the husband must remain calm at all times unless the wife wants him to be angry or upset. Rule number 12, the wife must, under no circumstances, let the husband know whether she wants him to be angry or upset. Rule number 13, the husband is expected to read the mind of the wife at all times. Rule number 14, at all times, what is important is what the wife meant, not what she said. And rule number 15, if the husband doesn't abide by the rules, it's because he can't take the heat, lacks backbone, and is a wimp. And rule number 16, if the husband at any time believes he is right, he must refer to rule 5. Rule 5, the wife is never wrong. So these are some rules for a happy marriage. If you didn't have time to write those down, guys, I'll give you a copy. uh, And you can work on having a happy marriage this year. So praise the Lord for that. All right. Well, take your Bibles with me tonight, if you would, and open them to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And I've got to be honest with you, I don't know why I keep having that Freudian slip. 
But um, I really do love Pastor Smith, and I appreciate him. And I love, I love Mrs. Smith, and uh, they're a wonderful, wonderful family. I can honestly say that uh, uh, my wife has never had a better pastor's wife than Mrs. Smith, and she would, she would tell you that herself. She has never had a, a pastor's wife who loved her and cared about her as much and was such a good influence in her life. And uh, so I love and appreciate Pastor and Mrs. Smith. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Let's stand together as we read tonight from Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse number 32. And we'll read through chapter 12 and verse 3. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint." In your minds. Let's pray. Our Father, we do praise your name. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. Thank you, Holy Spirit of God, that will teach us tonight from your word. And we just ask you to quiet us now. And I pray, Lord, that all that will be said would bring glory and honor to your name and would exalt the name of Jesus. And we'll thank you and we'll praise you for this for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. God's Super Bowl. Right now, at this very moment, millions of people around this world are watching a football game. They have made lavish plans to party with friends. They have anticipated this moment for weeks, even months. And for what? For one fleeting moment of glory. We read just a moment ago of the sufferings, the trials, and perils that the prophets of old endured for the kingdom of God. Look with me again at the words of, these, of this passage in Hebrews chapter 11. Look with me at verse 33 and see the power of their faith. We read, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women's received their dead raised to life again. These were a people of great courage. They were not just managing to get by in their lives. They were conquerors. In Romans chapter 8, 
Beginning at verse 35, we read, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. These men and women we read of a moment ago did not allow their circumstances to determine their commitment to God. They rose above their circumstances and did right regardless of the cost. Notice also from the passages we read the sufferings from their trials. In Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 35, we read, And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. When was the last time that we in America were mortally threatened because of our faith? How pathetic we have become in America as Christians. We cry and moan about how tough it is to be a Christian. We sit at home and we look for every excuse to stay out of church. Oh, the kids are too sick. I'm too tired from work. I have relatives from out of town who have come to visit. I don't have enough gas in my car. I coughed this morning and I don't want to spread my germs. I need to work some overtime to pay my bills. And on and on and on. These men and women we read about a moment ago, these heroes of the faith, were murdered for their faith. And from that time forward, the slaughter of Christians continued. The medieval inquisition, sometimes referred to as the papal inquisitions, began in 1229, officially began in 1229, and continued until 1478. And then in 1478, the Spanish Inquisitions took over, and they continued until they were finally completely put asunder in 1834. For some 600, over 600 years, hundreds and thousands of Christians, men and women just like you, were murdered for their faith. But even in the face of death, they would not be stopped. So you will forgive me tonight if I cannot find too much sympathy for our weak and flimsy excuses for failing to obey and failing to serve God. Then we see the impoverishment that these endured. And they endured this without, with contentment. Again, I refer to Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 37. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. We in America, we've become a bunch of fat cats, haven't we? We think that we're suffering for Christ because we do not have cable TV. We think uh, that, that we're suffering for Christ because we only have two cars in the driveway and not four. We think we're suffering for Christ in America. We're not even close to suffering compared to these, these heroes of the faith. 
These men and women most certainly went days, even weeks, without food to eat. They wandered from town to town, preaching the Word of God. And all of this without regard for their personal comforts or ease. And not once in the Scripture do we read of their complaints. They did not hang their lips. They faced each challenge with courage and with faith. Never seeing the coming of the Messiah whom they sought after, yet knowing that he would come. And never quitting, even unto their death. Then we turn to the next chapter, where we receive a stern admonition. Again, in Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 1, look at it with me. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Tonight, some 70 to 80,000 people have crammed into an arena. They sit and will witness the playing out of a football game. Every play will be seen. Every move will be accounted for. Every action will bear a consequence. And I submit to you this evening that as we live out our lives on this earth, we too are being watched. All those who have gone on before us sit as witnesses tonight for or against us. David, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Gideon, Samuel, and the list goes on and on. There are some tonight in that heavenly arena watching you and I, some closer and dearer to our hearts. Some of our dear friends in this church who have gone on to be with the Lord, lost relatives that have gone to be with Christ, they sit tonight and they watch over us. These not only sit in witness of our actions, but they also sit as examples unto us. We are to consider their lives and their trials. We are to study their doctrine. We are to follow in their paths of service. Now consider with me tonight for a few moments the words of the author of Hebrews. He said, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. In other words, I think we could say tonight, given the testimony of those who have gone before us, And given that it is now our time in this arena, our time on the stage in this life, what must we do to follow in their examples? Let me share three thoughts with you tonight. First, tonight, we must employ faith. We must employ faith. Again, Hebrews 12.1. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about... With so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Now this admonition prompts a question in my mind. How can I, who am prone to sin, how can I lay sin aside? I've been admonished. The the, the writer of Hebrews says, let us lay aside every weight. And the sin which doth so easily beset us. So how can we, who are prone to sin, lay sin aside? Well, in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4 we read, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world. Our faith. Now the translators inserted that word even. I prefer reading this verse without it. 
It's not even my faith that, by which I overcome the world. It is by faith that I overcome the world. We can. We can lay sin aside. Remember, Scripture tells us that our faith in God is our escape from temptation and sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 13, we read, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above the ear able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Oh, make no mistake. In tonight's Super Bowl, in tonight's Super Bowl game, the team's that are playing will employ the strategies and tactics of the teams that have gone before them. They will watch hours and hours of film. They will pour over hundreds and hundreds of plays looking for that one play that will give them the advantage. I find comfort in the verse we just read. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. If my God could help David and Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and Gideon and Samuel and all the great heroes of the faith, if he could help all of them overcome their temptations, he can help me too. Because there is no temptation that will take me that has not taken every other man. And I can look to the example of these great heroes and say, I can overcome them by faith. We must employ the same faith that caused Abraham to leave his home and search for a city whose builder and maker was God. We must employ the same faith that compelled Moses' mother to set him adrift in the Nile River. We must employ the same faith tonight that, that gave Noah the sight to see that which no man had ever seen. We must employ faith. So we go forward tonight. We go forward by faith. That means that we do not know what tomorrow may bring. But what we do know is that God will be with us and will provide for us. In Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 18, we read, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. A promise from my God that he will always be with me and he will never leave me nor forsake me. I do not know what awaits me over the horizon. Perhaps it's great blessings. It may be a grave illness, perhaps even death. But through it all, I have, the, I have confidence and I know that God is with me. And more than that, he is leading me in the path that I must take. And even though I do not know what tomorrow holds for me, I can face it with courage and confidence because of the faith that has been given to me by God. A faith that will help me overcome. So we can lay down those weights those burdens that cause us to stumble and fall behind. We can lay down that sin of doubt and unbelief. We can lay down that sin that so easily besets us. Just as Elijah and Elisha, as Samuel and Nehemiah, as Noah and Abraham, 
as Daniel and Paul, I too can employ the faith that God has given me. In Romans chapter 12, we read beginning at verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. That is right. God has made the same faith of these great heroes available to me tonight, and he's made it available to you as well. I can be like they were if I will learn to walk in faith as they did. Remember, Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us in verse 17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. We don't live by sight. We live by faith. By faith in Jesus Christ. So tonight, in God's Super Bowl, the first thing that we must have is we must employ faith. Then if we are to, if we are to succeed in this, in this arena in which we find ourselves today, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, we, number two, must endure challenges. First, we must employ faith. But secondly, we must endure challenges. Hebrews 12.1 again. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and then notice the end of this verse, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. One thing is for sure. The winner of tonight's Super Bowl will face many challenges from the first kickoff, which, by the way, happened to be a runback by Devin Hester for a touchdown, uh, from the first kickoff to the last snap of the ball game. And the team that overcomes these challenges will win the Super Bowl. How many of you here have ever run an obstacle course? Any of you ever run an obstacle course? Now, obstacle courses are filled with obstacles. This is why they are called obstacle courses. I recall my first week in boot camp. We'd been there four or five days, and they, they, they sufficiently terrorized us and had us scared of our own names. And then they took us out to the obstacle course. And we sat there, and they, they, they had a huge map on the wall, and it showed the obstacle course. And the guy stood there and, and, and told us what we had to do. You had to run, you had to climb this wall, and you had, to, you had to go over this cargo net, and then you had to swing across this big tower, then you had to cross this rope bridge, and you had to do all these things. And right underneath every one of these obstacles was a mud pit. You know, the military loves mud. They really do. Every one of those things had a huge, stinky mud pit right underneath. All of us that first day when we ran that obstacle course, we finished the obstacle course four pounds heavier than when we started. We were carrying four pounds of mud in our clothing when we got to the end. But you know, over the next 12 weeks, when we graduated from boot camp, we were able to tackle that obstacle course and not get any mud on us at all. That was exciting. 
That was fun. Uh, certainly, I, I would not do this life an injustice if I compared it to an obstacle course. Hebrews admonishes us to run the race. Run the race, Paul said. It is important to note here that we all have a race to run. But it is equally important to note that we each have an individual race to run as well. We are all running together in a race, but we are all independently running in a race as well. Can I tell you tonight, I cannot run your race, and you cannot run my race. Now, the paths of our races may intertwine at times. They may come together for a period of time. They come together as, as a church family as we work together. But our, our individual races and courses uh, separate. Maybe we're together only for moments. Perhaps God brings your, 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 your path into the path of another Christian maybe for months, maybe, maybe for years, maybe even for decades. But at some point in time, our paths will again separate and we must continue in our individual race for Christ. Now, this being true, there are two specific aspects to this race I want to focus on for a moment. First, letter A, this race must be run with patience. This race of ours in this life must be run with patience. The Greeks had a race in their Olympic Games that was rather unique. The winner of this race was not the runner who finished first. It was the runner who finished with his torch still lit. In Luke chapter 21 and verse 19, we read, In your patience possess ye your souls. We must endure all of the afflictions, all of the trials, all of the sufferings, all of the reproaches, all of the indignities associated with the Christian life. We must not allow these things to diminish our faith, nor to take away our hope. We must run this race with endurance. Consider for a moment a marathon runner. A marathon runner runs at a very easy pace. Why? Because he realizes he's got a long ways to run. Now, a sprinter who runs the hundred yard dash does not, they do not make good marathon runners because they tend to burn up all their energy right at the start. Uh, but they must be, a, a marathon runner must be a patient runner. A marathon runner doesn't, doesn't worry about how fast the guy next to him is running. He doesn't worry about any of that because the marathon runner has trained and he knows what pace to run and he knows when to pick up the pace and he knows when to make a push and when not to make a push. A marathon runner is prepared to run the long distance race. We have become a people of instant everything. Instant coffee. Instant mashed potatoes. Instant grits. No self-respecting southerner would eat instant grits. I was looking for grits the other day. Went all over town. All I could find was instant grits. I said, I'm in hell. No grits. We're an instant generation. Technology takes us from the freezer to the dining room plate in a matter of minutes. We have access to all of the amassed knowledge of man, but that's not good enough. 
We need to have it at nano speeds. Our computers need to be so fast that when we think about turning the switch on, it turns on. All of these instantaneous tendencies of our society have crept into our spiritual lives as well. We want blessings and we want them now. We don't want to wait. We don't want to wait. We want them right now. And if we don't get them right now, then God is not any good. He's unjust. He's unfair. Because we didn't get what we want, and we want it now. We hear preaching on tithing. So we tithe for one week, and we're not showered with blessings. So it doesn't work, so we quit. We decide to do right because someone stood up and gave a stirring testimony And so we we set out to do right, and and three days later, we have all kinds of problems, and we say, it just doesn't work. So we give up. We want success, and we want it yesterday. Never mind that it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. And in all that time, he never lost his faith. Never mind that Joseph spent 13 years in bondage in Egypt before God exalted him. All the while, he remained true to God's principles. Never mind that Moses spent 80 years before God finally brought his purpose to to light for him. We want success, and we want it now. Otherwise, God is just not faithful to us. Our race must be run in patience. We must remember that in this Christian race, all that finish win. So let us run, not to, not to be first, but let us run our race to finish and thereby win. But not only must this race be run in patience, secondly, this race must be run as prescribed. It must be run as prescribed. Yes, this race that we run in the Christian life has rules. It has rules. In this race, listen to me carefully, the ends do not justify the means. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 22, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Listen, in this race of the Christian life, how we arrive is just as important as where we are going. The philosophy of the world is just do whatever it takes to win. Lie, steal, cheat, murder, slander. It's all justified in the end if we succeed. But that's not the doctrine of Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And let's look beginning at verse 22. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22. We read here, That ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. No, it's not whatever it takes to win. It's what God tells us to do. We must run this race 
as prescribed. We must follow the rules. We were in darkness, but now we are in the light, the light of Jesus Christ. Now it is time for us to walk and run as children of the light. Ephesians 5, 8 tells us, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We are to run the race given us by God in truth and in righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 3, we read, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. We must run the race that is set before us according to God's word. God's Super Bowl. We must employ faith. We must endure challenges. But then thirdly tonight, I'd like for us to see this. We must emulate Christ. We must emulate Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I think the Apostle Paul summed it up best in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1. When he wrote, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Let me ask you something. When your neighbor looks at you, what do they see? When your fellow worker, that person you sit next to in the office or that you work next to on the job, when they look at you, what do they see? Do they look at you and say, there's a person that loves God? Or, if they look at us, can they even distinguish us apart from the world? You see, Paul said, we should emulate Christ. Paul said, when people look at us, they should see us. They should see us as servants of Christ. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ. One of my favorite books in the Bible is Philippians. And considering this matter of emulating Christ, let us look at Philippians chapter 2. It's going to appear on the screen. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, in closing tonight, allow me to share some thoughts with you quickly concerning the character of Christ and the character we need if we will emulate Christ as found in Scripture. First, letter A, let me say this. He was unselfish. Verse 6 tells us, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Jesus, though he was in every way God, was not pretentious and sought not to glorify himself. The average Christian says, well, what's in it for me? What's in this for me? Well, what what do I benefit from being in church? What do I benefit from the Christian life? But that wasn't the attitude of Christ. He laid aside his deity so that he might take upon himself the, the form of you and I and that he might redeem us under the Father. He was unselfish. Secondly, he was a servant. 
Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. So it must be in our pilgrimage through this life. You know, real happiness is found in the pathway of serving other people. You can make yourself, you can attempt to make yourself happy by serving yourself, but there's no real joy in that. But there's just something, have you ever noticed? How many of you, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever really taken the time to do something that really blessed another person or helped? Doesn't that feel good? It just feels so good. I mean, you walk away from there and you say, man, that was so good. I got to do that again. There's just something good about serving other people and doing things for others. He was a servant, and so must we. Thirdly, he was humble. In verse 8, it says, In being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Now, humility is seeing myself as God sees me, a sinner saved by grace. I'm nobody special. You're nobody special. We're, We're nothing. Listen, we were nothing when God saved us, and we're still nothing. We're nobody special. Paul tells us not to think of ourselves more more than we ought to think. We ought to esteem each other better than ourselves. In my office, I have a paperweight that was a gift given to me by someone, and etched in that that glass is a a quotation from uh, former President Ronald Reagan, and it, it reads this way. There is no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't care who gets the credit. But that's not the way we are at times. We want the credit. We even want credit most of the time for things we didn't even do. We want credit for the things somebody else did just because we happened to be there. We need to be humble. And then, letter D, he was obedient. Verse 8, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Obedience is the compliance with what is required as well as the abstinence of what is prohibited. Now, pastor preached very eloquently on this earlier today, and I'm not going to um, re-preach his message. But I do want to re-emphasize a couple of the things he said. First, obedience proves love. This isn't on your sheet, but you might want to jot this down. Obedience proves love. John 14, 15, if ye love me, keep my commandments. That's pretty cut and dry. You know, because I love my wife, I do the things that she asks me to do. I do things for my wife I would never do for anyone when I do them because I love her. And that, that my willingness to do things for her proves I love her. Obedience proves love. Secondly, obedience fosters fellowship. Obedience fosters fellowship. In John chapter 15 and verse 14, we read, Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever, (laughs) I command you. You know, I learned at a real early age, the best way to get along with my dad was just to do what he told me to do. I learned that when I did what dad said, dad was happy. When I didn't do what dad said, nobody was happy. 
And I learned real quickly that my obedience to my father fostered good fellowship between my father and myself. And then thirdly, obedience affects answers to prayers. In John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. When my children obey me, it is easier for them to get what they want from me than it is when they disobey me. Yeah, they know how. Kids know how to get what they want. They'll go, they'll go obey their parents, and pretty soon the blessings start flowing, don't they? Sure. What about us tonight? Do these attributes describe you? Or are we like so many of the people in this world? Selfish, self-serving, proud, arrogant, and disobedient. God's Super Bowl. We are all participants in this event tonight. Whether you want to be or whether you don't want to be, it makes no difference. You are. You and I are on the stage. We are in the arena. And surrounding us is a great cloud of witnesses who are looking down upon us. They're, here, they're there to witness what we do as well as they are there as examples unto us. How will we perform in this arena? Will we employ faith? Will we endure challenges? Will we emulate Christ? Will you come tonight, Christian, and heed the calling of God and the urging of the Holy Spirit to run this race worthy of our Lord? As the pastor comes, let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we're humbled in your sight tonight. We stand before you as humble Christians. Lord, you, you saved us. You've, you've given us a righteousness we could never, ever earn. And Lord, you've admonished us that we might run this race that you've placed us in. That we might run it with patience and that we might run it as you've prescribed it to us. Help us tonight to, to be like Christ. Help us tonight, Lord, to to look unto the examples of the many witnesses that have gone before us, the great heroes of the faith. Help us to help one another. Help us to unite in this church. And and at the times during our lives when our paths are, are, are knit together, help us to all work together and love one another and obey you and go forward as your as your children. I pray you would take the time that will come now and that you would speak to hearts and minds and that you would have your way with us and that we would yield ourselves to the direction and guidance of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, Pastor.